Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. This is a three-part series on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And in the previous podcast episode, we looked at the historical evidence for five facts that surround the death of Jesus. And these facts are facts that scholars and historians who study the historical Jesus are either universally or at least nearly universally agreed that these facts are indeed facts. Uh, the, The facts that we looked at and the historical evidence and arguments in favor of them were, one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Two, Jesus's tomb was found empty the following Sunday morning. Three, Jesus's 12 disciples sincerely believed that he appeared to them alive after his death. Four, that a church persecutor named Saul of Tarsus converted to Christianity on the basis of what he believed to be an appearance of the risen Jesus. And five, that a skeptic named James converted to Christianity on the basis of what he perceived to be an appearance of the risen Jesus. These five facts have a lot of evidence in favor of them. And if you did not listen to the previous podcast episode, I highly recommend that you do so so that you can see the historical arguments for the truth of these five assertions, which without the arguments and the evidence, they would be just assertions. So if you haven't listened to the previous podcast episode, listen listen to that. And then come back to this one. Now, the most scholars and historians, even non-Christian scholars, are agreed on these five historical facts about Jesus' death and what happened afterwards. But they are not all in agreement about how best to explain them. The Christian scholars would say that how you best explain these is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's why his tomb was found empty, and that's why the disciples, Paul, James, and many others, uh, believed that they saw him alive after his death. If you have a resurrection, all of that makes sense, right? If a man rose from the dead, of course he's going to leave an empty sepulcher behind. And of course he's going to start appearing to people, because he's not dead anymore. But... Those who do not affirm Christianity try to find some other way to explain these five facts. And I do not think that this is illegitimate. I think that it is quite rational to look for a natural explanation before you jump to supernatural conclusions. After all, we do know that most things that occur have natural explanations behind them. Miraculous miracles are the exception, not the rule. And I have a blog post on cerebralfaith.blogspot.com. I said that kind of fast. Uh, Cerebralfaith.blogspot.com. And the, the 
blog post is called, um, I think it's called Why Are Miracles So Rare or The Scarcity of Miracles. But in that blog post, I explain that even in the biblical narratives, miracles are the exception, not the rule. Now, this strikes many as odd, because when they read the Gospels or they read the book of Exodus, they're like, what are you talking about, Evan? There are miracles happening on every single page. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that miracles, they did occur frequently in certain clusters in a very short time period during the, the lives of certain prophets, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, and the apostles. But aside from the Exodus, the ministry of Elijah, and the, the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, most of biblical history just has God acting through ordinary providence. God working through natural laws and and the actions of people. So even the even on a this is the fact that most things have natural explanations behind them is expected from a Christian worldview. But given that that's the case, we should I think methodologically we should not conclude that a supernatural miracle has occurred unless we absolutely have to, or unless there's absolutely no other way to explain it, or unless it, it just it fits all the data and we've exhausted all of the possible natural explanations. So in order for us to be truly justified in concluding that Jesus rose from the dead, we'll have to eliminate the possible explanations to account for Jesus' empty tomb and various post-mortem appearances so that we can be certain that this really that the resurrection really is the best explanation the reasoning that i'm doing here is called reasoning to the best explanation or inferring to the best explanation and in his book cold case christianity j warner wallace gives a, a very interesting illustration to um to illustrate how this reasoning works, he calls us to a crime scene, a dead or a dead body scene. And when we get to the scene, there's a guy lying face down on the floor. Now, if the fact that the guy is laying lying face down on the floor and he's dead, if that was the only piece of explanation you had, you wouldn't be justified in inferring that he was murdered or that he died a natural death, or any other. You, 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 wouldn't, you couldn't come to a conclusion based on the fact that he's lying on the floor face, face down by itself. So of the four possible explanations that you have to explain why the man is dead, which all deaths fall, as, as, as Wallace points out, all deaths fall into four categories. It's either a natural death, an accidental death, it's a suicide, or it's a homicide. Just based on that fact, you wouldn't be able to know. Is this a natural death? Is it an accidental death? Is it a suicide? Is it a hom homicide? We don't know. We'd have to have more information. Well, let's suppose that the man is not only lying face down on the floor dead, but he's got multiple stab wounds in his back... And he's lying in a pool of blood, and there are footprints walking away 
from the body that lead outside. Now, based on this, we can start ruling out possible explanations. Was this a natural death? No, of course not. What kind of natural event is going to cause multiple stab wounds to appear in a person's back and cause footprints to start leading out the door? There's no nat there's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no there's nothing that's going to, to cause that to occur uh when when a person dies. Well, is it an accidental death? You know, maybe maybe this guy just he 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 wasn't very careful in doing whatever it was he was doing and he he died accidentally. He did it himself, but it was an accident. Well, that's not a reasonable explanation either, because all of the puncture wounds are in his back, and how is and there are footprints. How is how is that go to be? How is that an accident? Did he accidentally back into a knife, and then he accidentally backed into it again, and then he accidentally backed into it again, and then he accidentally backed into it again? <laughs> Why didn't he learn it? Why didn't he learn from his mistake the first time he backed into the knife? And then what? What about the footprints leading out the door? What did he uh, did he go outside and have a smoke before coming in and lying down and just and passing away? This is ridiculous. So it is not an accidental death. Is it a suicide? Well, none that's unlikely based on the facts that we have. It is unlikely that the guy could have taken a knife and... I mean, he could have reached back there, but it is unlikely that he reached back there and jabbed himself in the back multiple times to kill himself. If he were going to kill himself via a stab wound, he would have most likely done it the way that samurais did it in feudal times. He would have taken a, a knife, a dagger, or a sword and just plunged it into his gut not into his back. So suicide is ruled out. So with the three po possible explanations, uh, natural death, accidental death, uh, and suicide, the only explanation left is that this is a homicide. And as a detective, you would have to go look for the murderer. Uh, and this is this is uh, this illustration comes from J. Warner Wallace's book Cold Case Christianity, and I think it's a very good illustration to show how abductive reasoning, also known as inferring to the best explanation, works. And that's what we're going. That's what I'm going to be doing in this podcast episode. I'm going to be taking the facts that we established as true in the previous episode that Jesus died by crucifixion, his tomb was empty, the disciples saw him. Paul of Tarsus saw him, and as a result became a Christian, and James saw him. And say, okay, of the possible explanations, which ones can we rule out? And after we get done with this process of elimination, what is going to be the one that remains and stands tall and can explain all the facts? Well, let, let's look at them. I think we should look at probably the earliest naturalistic theory to ever be posed against the resurrection, and that is the stolen body theory. What is the stolen body theory? Well, this theory dates back... This theory is so old that it's even included in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28. The Jewish polemic against the resurrection, the, Jew, the Jews were, were running around Palestine saying, 
the disciples, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The disciples took the body out of the tomb and hid it somewhere so that they could hoax, they could fake the resurrection. And so, and um, they they stole the body, hid it somewhere, and ran around saying, oh, he is risen, he is risen. And if anyone wanted to fact check them, uh, go down to the empty tomb, they'd see it was empty and, and be like, oh, oh, the tomb is empty. They must be, they must be right. Jesus must have gotten out of the tomb. Um, and so it really, it was just a, a whole, a big hoax. And, and this was a very popular explanation in Christianity's earliest years. What are the problems with this theory? The, the problem with this theory is that, recall from the previous podcast episode, that church history is unanimous in that all, well, not all 12, John died of old age on the island of Patmos, but nine, um, 11 of the disciples died gruesome, horrific, uh, torturous deaths. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down. Crucifixion is one... It, it, I If I were to make a top five w- list of, of some of the worst ways to die, I don't... It, crucifixion might be number one on the list. And if it's not... If it wasn't number one on the list, it, at le- it would at least make the top five. And historical sources say that uh, Thomas, you know, Doubting Thomas, he was speared to death in India. And Philip was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Matthew died by being dragged by a horse. And the Apostle John, while he didn't die, sources say he he did, he was boiled alive, but it failed. And so the Romans said, well, we can't, we, that, that didn't work. Let's just uh, exile him so he can't preach anymore but it's there it's unanimous that they all died martyrs deaths and some died better deaths than others um quite frankly if i could choose which martyrdom i i i would choose the martyrdom of james son of zebedee be beheaded it's quick it's swift but crucifixion oh man and, and even being dragged by a horse that's that can't you know that's that's got to be painful. That's not a fast way to go. Now the question is, now if you want to you want to know what what sources that I that I'm being very vague about. If you want to know what sources those are, go uh, listen to the previous podcast episode. I I list these historians by name, but I'm not for time constraints. I'm not going to go through them now. I I list uh, I I list which historians uh, which writers record the martyrdoms of the dis- of the disciples in the previous podcast episode. Now, given that they all died brutal martyrs' deaths, the stolen body theory is absurd. Why would they die for a known lie? Why would they die for something that they knew wasn't true? People, people will die for a lie that they think is true, but no one will die for a lie that they know is false. That is the fatal flaw of the stolen body theory. It posits that the disciples were willing to endure the most horrific torture for something that they consciously knew was false. 
The late Charles Coulson, who did time for being an accomplice in Watergate, but who later became a Christian, wrote this, quote, Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up, perpetrated by the closest aides to the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence, that is, testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. Two weeks. The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks, and then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all of those around the president were facing was embarrassment, maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have been made a deal with the authorities? None did. End quote. People do not die for something that they know is false. Now, again... When you bring this point up to skeptics, they'll say, oh, but that doesn't prove that the resurrection is true any more than Muslims flying airplanes into the World Trade Center proves that Islam is true. So if, if martyrdom proves that Christianity is true, it must prove that Islam is true. But Christianity and Islam make contradictory claims. So therefore, they, can't, this are, they cancel each other out. So this is not a good argument. Yes, I agree. It's not a good argument. That's not the point. The point is not that because the disciples of Jesus were willing to die martyrs' death, that Christianity is true. The point is that because they were willing to die martyrs' deaths, they weren't purposefully trying to deceive people. Mike Lacona, in his uh, book on the resurrection, has a very uh, <laughs> an interesting uh, illustration. He says, uh, no, no one thinks that when the jihadists got into the cockpit of the airplane that they were consciously thinking, okay, Islam is false, Allah is a false god, Muhammad is a false prophet. If if I if I do this, if I run if I fly these planes into these buildings, I'm going to die and I'm going to go to hell for eternity. Uh let's do this thing. No. They really believed it was true. They were sincerely mistaken, but they but they were sincere. Also, the the point the disciples differ from they they're different from modern martyrs today. Unlike modern modern martyrs, the disciples of Jesus were in the position to know whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Christians today either believe on the basis of secondary evidence, like the minimal facts argument for Jesus' resurrection, or on no evidence, blind faith, or on religious experience. But the disciples believed on the basis of primary evidence. They claimed that Jesus appeared to them. They went to the tomb. They saw it empty. And they saw Jesus standing before them. And it was this that they claimed... It was on this this basis that they claimed Jesus rose from the dead, and they went to their deaths. So the stolen body theory fails for three. Uh, it fails because the disciples died for preaching the resurrection, and mar liars make poor martyrs. But more than that, it doesn't explain 
why Paul believed that he saw Jesus post-crucifixion. He, he, he was a persecutor. What, what was... <laughs> and it doesn't explain why James believed he saw Jesus post-crucifixion. Okay, theory number two. The stolen, stolen body theory, other person edition. People who realize that you can't implicate the disciples in stealing the body of Jesus because hoaxers can't sincerely, sincerely believe their own hoaxes, they try to pin it on someone else. But they never say who specifically. Maybe the butler did it. Um, but the problem, with this theory, the problem with this theory is numerous. First, we, we saw that the disciples sincerely believed that they saw the risen Jesus. That was what they claimed. We have multiple attestation from the Apostle Paul's epistles, from the epistles of Polycarp, and from the epistles of Ignatius. All three of these pe persons claimed that the disciples preached that Jesus appeared to them alive. They saw Jesus. That's what they claimed. That's what they believed. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers and sisters at the same time, etc. Then he appeared to me also, says Paul. Paul believed that Jesus appeared to him. So, this modified version of the stolen body theory, uh, which Gary Habermas calls fraud B, it can't account for any of the post-mortem appearances. It can't account for the post-mortem appearances to the disciples. It can't account to the post, uh, for the post-mortem appearance to Paul. And it can't account for the post-mortem appearance to James. Any theory that is going to be the one that, that we go with, it has to be able to explain all of the facts. If it fails to explain any of them, it will be rejected on the basis of inferior explanatory scope. Theory 3, the wrong tomb theory. This naturalistic theory says that when the women went down to the tomb and they, they saw it empty, what really happened was that they went to the wrong tomb. They went to a tomb that never had a body in it in the first place. And they were, mis and they were mistaken. They thought, oh, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen. Then they ran back and told the disciples. The whole thing was really a misunderstanding. This theory is implausible on its face. This theory, the people who pose this theory expect us to believe that everyone who would have been interested in the tomb of Jesus completely forgot where it was. Not only did the, not only did the women go down to the wrong tomb, but Peter and John went down to the wrong tomb. And the Pharisees went down to the wrong tomb. And, of course... The Romans' guards must have been guarding the wrong tomb. They must have been very, they must have been confused at why these people were running in and out of the of the tomb next door. This is just absurd. And we have good reason to believe that the the location of Jesus's tomb was well known. That we have we have reason to believe that the burial story of Jesus is historically reliable. Just. Two reasons. Just I'll just give you one reason, uh, and that is that Jesus is said to have been given an honorable burial by Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, 
And it is unlikely that Christian tradition would make up an individual from the very group that had Jesus killed and have him be the one to give Jesus an honorable burial while the disciples were all hiding in, in fear like cowards. The, the principle of embarrassment supports the reliability of the, the burial story. It's also multiply attested. It's in the gospel, the synoptic gospels. It's in and it's in the gospel of John. This, but even more devastating to the theory is the fact that it doesn't explain the majority of the minimal facts. It doesn't explain the postmortem appearances to the disciples, Paul, or James. The resurrection hypothesis explains all of these. So the theory fails because, one, the tomb's location was known. Extremely unlikely everyone interested in the tomb forgot where it was. Two, the disciples didn't believe because the tomb was empty, but because they believed Jesus appeared to them. Three, Paul was convinced on the basis of an appearance. And four, James was convinced on the basis of an appearance. Theory four, the swoon theory. This is a theory that Friedrich Schleiermacher put forth in his book On Religion, Speeches to Its Culture's Despisers in 1799. This theory says that maybe Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but maybe he just fainted, he swooned, and later the cool damp air of the tomb sort of roused him around into consciousness. So what we have here is not a miraculous resurrection, but simply a fortuitous resuscitation. There are this theory is not widely held anymore, but it is still posed by some particularly um, internet atheists, uh, non-scholars. And what what are the problems with this theory? Why do people reject this theory? This theory, by the way, it tries to explain minimal facts 2, 3, 4, and 5 by denying minimal fact 1, that Jesus died by crucifixion. They'll say, oh yeah, Jesus was crucified, all right. The historical evidence is overwhelming for the historicity of Je that Jesus was crucified, but, but he wasn't dead, he just swooned. He didn't die by crucifixion, he was, ju he was just injured by crucifixion. So what are the problems with this? Well, first of all, given the nature of the pre-crucifixion scourging and of crucifixion itself, there's no way that anyone could have survived that. When a to-be-crucified person was scourged, they would be given 40 lashes. History tells us that the 40 lashes were from a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls, uh, broken pieces of glass, broken pieces of sheep bone, uh, woven into them, and the and basically anything sharp that would cut a person. And when the whip would strike the flesh, the metal balls would cause severe bruising, and the sheep bone and the broken glass would cut the flesh severely. You can easily imagine how shredded a person's back would be after being whipped by multiple blades. 40 times multiple blades you've got you've got like you've got like eight or nine different different whips attached to this one handle and there's broken pieces of glass sheep bone metal balls and all kinds of 
metal shards and things like that. And they're going whap, 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 whap. 40 times. You can imagine, just based on what I've described, the weapon that was used on Jesus, as well as other crucifixion victims, how bad, how bad of, of a shape that the people would be in afterwards. In fact, in, uh, in the case for Christ, in Lee Strobel's interview with Dr. Alexander Methrell, Dr. Alexander Methrell that said that the, um, that the force, the cuts and the force of the beating would shred the back so much that the spine of the victim was often exposed. The whipping would have gone all the way down the shoulders to the back, the back, and the back of the legs. One physician who has studied Roman beating said, quote, As the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh, end quote. Eusebius, a 3rd century historian, described scourging with the following words, quote, The sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Such a hellacious beating would have resulted in Jesus going into hypovolemic shock. What is hypovolemic shock? Hypovolemic shock is caused by severe blood loss. It causes four symptoms to occur. First, the heart races in a desperate attempt to replace all the blood that was lost. Second, the blood pressure plummets, bringing about fainting or collapsing. Third, the kidneys stop making urine in an attempt to preserve what little liquid is left in the body. And fourth, the person gets very, very thirsty. When you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' execution, all of the symptoms of hypovolemic shock are present. At one point, Jesus falls while carrying his cross, and Simon of Cyrene is forced to help Jesus carry his cross the rest of the way. Later, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, I thirst, and then a Roman soldier dipped a sponge in vinegar and stuck it up to Jesus' mouth for him to drink. See John chapter 19, verses 28-29. to 29. Jesus was in critical condition even before he was crucified. Then Jesus... Uh, carried his cross to the site of the crucifixion, and he was nailed to it. Now, how does crucifixion kill its victims? Well, I saw a documentary on the History Channel a few years ago in which a person was, in which scientists performed experiments on people. They, they tied people to crosses in, a sim, in the similar position that that crucifixion victims were put in, and the, vo the this was a volunteer experiment, very controlled, so no one's life was in danger, but the volunteers uh, described having an inability to breathe. They would have to push up on, on their feet, they would have to use their feet to push up in order to exhale, and then they would come back down to inhale. Then they'd have to push up again to exhale, and then come back down again to inhale. And they would have to do this over and over and over. And eventually, they would get exhausted, and they couldn't do it anymore, so they would request that the scientists take them down. What these experiments proved is that uh, crucifixion was basically a slow death by asphyxiation, by suffocation. 
Now, this could sometimes take quite a while. So what Romans would do if they wanted to hasten death is that they would they would take a a large wooden club and they would whack the shins of the crucifixion victims breaking their legs. So then they could they couldn't push up and down to breathe anymore. They would just sag there and death would come quickly. When we read the Gospel of John's report of Jesus's crucifixion says that the Romans didn't do this to Jesus because they saw that he was already dead. But just to make sure, they took a javelin and they pierced his 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 side. It punctured his, his heart and lungs. And we have good reason to believe, for, even from extra-biblical sources, that this kind of practice of stabbing crucifixion victims in the side really occurred. We have a Roman historian named Quintilian ta- uh, talking about uh, an instance of of piercing a crucified body to check if it was dead. So that increases the plausibility of John's account. But also, given John's lack of metal, not of, not metal knowledge, not middle knowledge either, medical knowledge, uh, it it makes this uh, likely. Now, why do I say that? Because what happened to Jesus, because of what, I say that because of what happened to Jesus after they pierced him, after they jabbed the javelin into him. John describes blood and water gushing out. Now, anyone would expect for blood to gush out of a crucified, per, uh, out of a, an impaled person. But water? Water is, is an odd thing to describe. Now, medically, we know now that um, Jesus's Uh, we, we know now that, that what that clear fluid is, is pericardial effusion. It's clear fluid that built up around Jesus' heart. And, and if it punctured his lung as well, it could have also, there could have also been pleural effusion. Pericardial effusion and pleural effusion. And, I mean, this fact alone proves that Jesus was dead because, as Dr. Alexander Methrell told to Lee Strobel in The Case for Christ... Uh, this, you can't have pericardial effusion and pleural effusion built up in a person's heart if they were already dead. So the, I mean, uh, if they were still alive. So the fact that, that, so the fact that that had built up and had gushed out when Jesus was jabbed proved that Jesus was already dead. So, this theory just isn't the least bit plausible. It, it was it was impossible for Jesus to survive that whole ordeal. I mean, he was in hypervolemic sh- hypovolemic shock from the pre-crucifixion scourging alone. He would have died. He he would have bled to death. He would have died from extreme blood loss. If that didn't get him, he would have suffocated to death. And if that didn't get him, the spear jabbed into him certainly finished him off. And the fact that that blood and pericardial effusion gushed out shows that Jesus was dead even before he was jabbed. Um, So this theory just isn't, just doesn't work. But let's suppose that the let's suppose that the impossible did occur. Let's suppose that against all the odds, Jesus somehow survived the aforementioned hell on earth. 
Non-Christian David Strauss explains that, quote, It is impossible that a being who had stolen half-dead out of the sepulcher, who crept about weak and ill and wanting medical treatment, could have given the disciples the impression that he was the conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life, an impression that lay at the very bottom of their future ministry. End quote. Gary Habermas comments, quote, Every once in a while, the swoon theory appears again, but it has not really been very popular since Strauss's devastating critique in 1835. By the turn of the century, it was declared to be only a curiosity of the past. End quote. So, the first minimal fact stands. Jesus died by crucifixion. Theory 5, the hallucination theory. David Strauss rightly thought that the swoon theory was a big pile of nonsense. So he thought to he sought to explain Jesus's postmortem appearances by means of hallucinations. Uh, this is probably the most popular naturalistic theory today. Gerd Ludemann holds it. Bart Ehrman holds it. A lot of scholars hold it. So skeptical scholars. Um, now the biggest problem with this theory is that, as any psychologist will tell you, and, and in fact the psychologist Gary Collins told this to Lee Strobel in The Case for Christ, um, is that hallucinations are occurrences that happen in the minds of individuals. They're like dreams in this way. Imagine that you, your spouse wakes up in the middle of the night and turns over to you and says, Honey, honey, you gotta come join me in this in this dream I'm having. I'm I was in Hawaii uh, at a luxury resort. Let's both go back to sleep. We'll have the same dream. We'll save on um, we'll save money on air travel, on hotel costs, on food. It'll be great. It'll be such an awesome vacation. You would look at your spouse and go, what? You, you know that dreams are not something that can be shared experiences. I, I mean, even, they can't be controlled either. You, you can't control... I mean, haven't you ever had an awesome dream, woke up and wished you could go back to sleep and continue to have it? But, I mean, let's say you could control your dreams. Even if you could, you couldn't share that with an individual. You couldn't project that into someone else's mind. Dreams are, are occurrences that occur in individual minds. And hallucinations are the same way. Now, the early, the extremely early creed I talked about in the previous podcast episode that Paul most likely got from Peter and James just five years after the death of Jesus includes not just uh, risen Jesus appearances to individuals, but to multiple groups of people. Jesus appeared to the disciples as a group. He appeared to 500 people at the same time. He appeared to all of the apostles at one time. And he appeared to James, and he appeared to Peter and Paul. These would be individual occurrences. And if we include the gospel accounts of the postmortem appearances of Jesus, which, by the way, that was that's one of the arguments for the historicity of the postmortem appearances I talk about in my book, My Redeemer Lives, Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus, in which I go into all of this in much more detail. Uh, one of the, the reasons 
This is actually, I think, reason number four, is that the postmortem appearances are multiply attested. It's not just in the early 1 Corinthians 15 creed, but the Gospel of John records postmortem appearances to the disciples, and the Synoptic Gospels record postmortem appearances to the disciples. So you've got at least three independent sources, and what are the odds that three independent sources are all going to make up the same thing? But you have even more group appearances in... The gospel accounts. Now, how are multiple groups of people all going to have the same hallucination? Let's just take the 12 disciples by, by themselves. Just the, that one group appearance. How are all 12 people going to have the exact same hallucination at the exact same time? And it's not just one group hallucination that the skeptic is asking us to believe here. It's multiple group hallucinations, one of which was the size of 500 people. Are you honestly expecting me to believe that 500 people all had the same hallucination at the same time? That would be like the entire... That would be like an entire baseball stadium. Actually... That would be like an entire baseball stadium all hallucinating a dragon appearing in the middle of the stadium. That just can't happen. Uh, in Lee Strobel's interview with Gary Collins, the, the psychologist that he was interviewing on, on, on this, uh, Collins said, quote, that... Oh, no, this isn't a quote. This is me paraphrasing it here. I got it pulled up on my computer. It says, he said that for a group of 500 people to witness the exact same hallucination of a raised Jesus would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. Not only that, not only are group hallucinations statistically impossible, especially multiple groups at, and at multiple times, but hallucinations of any kind are uncommon. Hallucinations are usually induced by sleep deprivation, a high fever, or mental instability. None of these factors were, li were likely present in the disciples Paul or James. For, for, all we, for what we know from the New Testament and extra-biblical sources, we don't see evidence that Paul, the disciples, or James were insomniacs, druggies, or crazy. So, it is unlikely that they would have had it, that one of them would have had a hallucination anyway. Just, just any individual of them. And finally, the reason why this theory doesn't work is that it fails in explanatory scope. It attempts to explain the postmortem appearances, but it doesn't even try to explain the empty tomb. How do you account for the empty tomb? What happened to Jesus' body? Why is it gone? Theory 6, the groupthink theory. Some skeptics think that perhaps the disciples were so in anticipation of Jesus' return from the dead that they just kind of talked themselves into it. You know, the one day Peter and John were going down to the tomb and John sees a shadowy figure in the distance. And, and John says to Peter, Peter, I think I see Jesus over there. Do you see him? And Peter's like, oh, yeah, 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 I think I do. I think I do. And they just talk themselves into it. Could this be what happened? No. Why? There are four reasons. 
first of all, Jesus was dead, and Jews were not were not expecting a dying Messiah, but a conquering warrior king, a Messiah who would come and throw off the shackles of their oppro- of their oppressors, the Romans. Secondly, according to the to the in uh, the common interpretation of an Old Testament passage back in the day, Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three, twenty one Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three says that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse, and because crucif- uh, crosses are made out of wood, they're technically trees, and so people back then thought of people crucified as being hung on a tree. So they this. The fact that Jesus was crucified would have led the disciples, apart from a resurrection, to think that Caiaphas and the Pharisees were right in condemning Jesus of blasphemy. Thirdly, Jews believed, while Jews believed in a bodily resurrection, they didn't expect anyone to get up out of their grave smack dab in the middle of human history. Rather, they believed that all people would be raised from the dead at the at the end of time, at the end of the world. They didn't expect anyone to get out of their grave smack dab in the middle of human history. Fourthly, some of the people who experienced a sighting of Jesus were skeptics, such as James, the brother of Jesus. We have embarrassing testimony and multiple attestation to the fact that James was not a believer during Jesus' lifetime. Go to the previous podcast to hear me explain that. Paul was persecuting Christians because he considered them the worst of heretics. He experienced a sighting of the risen Jesus, and he became the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of all time. These two skeptics were not in any way expecting Jesus to come back. Theory 7, the legend theory. Some people say that the resurrection of Jesus was a legend that embellished, that em- developed over time. It, it, was, it was embellished. This theory doesn't work because, as we saw in the previous podcast, we can trace the claims of the resurrection to the lips of the original disciples themselves. We... Um, uh, Irenaeus and Tertullian both independently attest that Polycarp and Clement were disciples of the disciples and that they learned from them and were taught by them. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 1 and 2 says that he went to meet with the disciples to see with the to see if he was teach, preaching the same gospel that they were preaching. That Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And Paul says, they added nothing to me. They agreed with what I was saying. They were saying, they said, yep, in Galatians 2, they said, yep, you're preaching the same gospel. So, Paul, Clement, and Polycarp independently testify to the fact that the disciples of Jesus, the twelve were claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. Since we can trace the claims of the dis- of the resurrection back to the lips of the original disciples, it cannot be a legend that developed over time. It started right smack dab with 
with the people. The claim started with the people who were there, the people who knew Jesus. And we have good evidence, as we saw in the, or as you heard in the previous podcast episode, that the First Corinthians fifteen creed dates back to within five years after the death of Jesus. This is far too short of a time period for legend to develop. Ian Sherwin-White of Oxford University did a study of the rates at which legend develops in the ancient world, and he discovered that two generations of time weren't even enough for legend to develop and wipe out a core of historical truth. But we don't have generation we don't have two generations of time here. We don't even have an entire decade. We only have five years. Okay, theory eight, the copycat theory. This is a uh, this is a different version of the legend theory that I just addressed. This theory basically says that Jesus was copied from pagan deities, dying and rising gods. Now, there is an extreme contrast between academic academia and lay circles. It's extremely popular, this theory, among internet infidels and atheist bloggers, but hardly any scholar who studies ancient Palestinian history, ancient Roman history, the historical Jesus, none of them give it any credit. Uh, it It was popular among scholars in the 19th century, but it was thoroughly discredited and abandoned at the turn of the 20th. It was killed by scholarship. As I like to say, it was killed by scholarship, but the but its ghost lives on in the realm of atheistic blogs. Uh, now, what is this theory? The theory says that the story of Jesus we find in the New Testament was essentially plagiarized from various stories of dying and rising gods in pagan religions that predate Christianity. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the skeptic will say. I'm going to describe someone to you, and I want you to tell me who it is. This man was born on December 25th to a virgin. A star in the east signaled his birth. He had 12 disciples. He walked on water. He was killed, but then he rose from the dead three days later. And the other person goes, and and the atheist goes, who am I talking about? And the other person goes, you're talking about Jesus. And the atheist goes, no, I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about Horus. Horus preceded Jesus. You see, the, the, the Christians just took the story of Horus and put a new spin on it. In fact, Horus is not the only example. There are many examples of pagan gods who match the description of Jesus. You, Mr. Christian, don't believe in any of these. Why would you put stock in the story of Jesus? Can't you see that the story of Jesus is just the myth that took hold? Oftentimes in these dis- discussions, the Christian is rattled. He has never heard of any of this before, and it does a major dent in his faith. In fact, many atheists don't just argue, don't just use this to argue that Jesus, that the story of Jesus' miracles and resurrection were plagiarized from these pagan deities, but they infer that these similarities disprove that Jesus of Nazareth even existed as a historical figure. Was Jesus just a plagiarized Horus? Given that this theory is so extremely widespread among lay atheists, I think it is important that I devote some time to it. First, you still have to explain the minimal facts. In one sense, this argument is merely a red herring. 
The red herring fallacy occurs when someone brings up an argument that is irrelevant in the debate at hand. This fallacy occurs when someone, either knowingly or unknowingly, tries to throw you off the trail. When you think about it, whether there are stories predating Jesus doesn't really tell us anything about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus' death by crucifixion is multiply, multiply, multiply attested in nine independent accounts. Four of those accounts are secular in nature, i.e. Josephus, Tacitus, Marabar Serapion, and Lucian of Samosata. One of them is Jewish, i.e. the Jewish Talmud, and four of them are from the New Testament, i.e. the Gospel of Mark, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, the Gospel of John, and the Apostle Paul's epistles. On the basis of the principle of multiple attestation alone, we can have the utmost certainty that a man named Jesus existed and was crucified by the command of Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, during the reign of Tiberius Caesar at the request of the Jewish Sanhedrin. It is statistically impossible for nine independent sources to all make up the same lie and then treat it as though it were a historical event. That is ludicrous. Nine independent sources cannot all make up the same fiction and then treat it as a historical fact. Moreover, we have enemy attestation to the crucifixion of Jesus. Tacitus and Lucian of Samosata were mocking Christianity in the very same context in which they affirm the historicity of Jesus' death on the cross. And the Jewish Talmud says that Jesus' death was justified because he was a sorcerer leading Israel astray. If the story of Jesus' death were just simply a myth, Tacitus and Lucian would have gladly pointed that out. Instead, Lucian said in a nutshell, those silly Christians, the God they worship, is a crucified criminal. And, Tac and Tacitus said, quote, Christus, the founder of the name, Christian, suffered the extreme penalty at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, during the reign of Tiberius, end quote. They are hostile sources who affirm the historicity of Jesus' death by Roman, uh, of Jesus, who affirm the historicity of Jesus' existence and death by Roman crucifixion. Moreover, Jesus' death by crucifixion fits the principle of historical fit. And there are many details, this, I didn't mention in, this in the previous podcast episode, but I do go into it in my book, My Redeemer Lives, Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus. There are many details about Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospels that either the disciples or the early church just would not make up. One of these being Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, okay, Jesus, you don't know why you're being crucified, even though you repeatedly predicted it over and over and over and said that the reason you had to die was for atonement for sin. Okay, what's that about? Uh, also, if Jesus is God, how, how, can, how can God abandon him? Can God abandon God? Is there a, is, is the Trinity, was the Trinity split in half or not half? because there's three of them, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, what's going on here? I mean, this is uh, people uh, People find this to be a strange thing for Jesus to say even today. Now, of course, as I point out in the book, that this was an allusion to Psalm 22, which is a messianic prophecy, and 
you look at what Jesus goes through in Psalm 22, and uh, when you when you look at what happens in Psalm 22 and what happened to Jesus, it is strikingly similar, incredibly similar. It's like it's like Psalm 22 was an eyewitness report of the crucifixion. But anyway, that that's not that's uh, that's a very awkward detail to put in there. Um. So, the first minimal fact passes so many historians' principles of authenticity that it is futile to try to dispute its historicity. And, like I said, in my book, My Redeemer Lives, I, I think I go into, like, ten different arguments for the historicity of Jesus' crucifixion. I only mentioned I, I only mentioned a few of them in this podcast series. What about the empty tomb? Again, pointing to parallels between dying and rising gods doesn't explain the empty tomb. Like the crucifixion, the uh, empty tomb is established on multiple lines of historical evidence. The principle of embarrassment applies to the empty tomb because the because women were second-class citizens back then whose testimony was so worthless that they weren't even permitted to serve as witnesses in a court of in a court of law. Women did sometimes testify, but only as a last resort, only when there was not a single male witness at the crime. It's not that women weren't allowed to testify, period, but only as an absolute last resort. Uh, now, given that women's testimony was so lowly regarded, it's highly unlikely that the disciples or early church would depict them as being the chief witnesses to the empty tomb. For to do that would be to put words in the mouths of witnesses who would not be believed. If the gospel authors were making up the empty tomb story, they would have made male disciples like Peter or John discover the empty tomb. The fact that it is women rather than men who are the chief witnesses to the empty tomb is best explained by the fact that, like it or not, they were indeed the first witnesses to the empty tomb, and the gospel writers faithfully recorded what was for them an awkward and embarrassing fact. The principle of embarrassment gives us good reason to believe the historicity of the empty tomb narratives, pointing to supposed parallels to Jesus and dying and rising pagan gods, does nothing to either refute the historicity of the empty tomb, nor explain it. The empty tomb also is enemy-attested, for the Jew, the Jews, rather than say, rather than the Jews were saying that Jesus, that the disciples of Jesus went down, stole his body, hid it somewhere, and were just spreading a hoax. Why would they do that unless the tomb was empty? Also, the fact that Christianity is still alive today is a strong indicator that the enemies did not exhume Jesus' corpse. If they wanted to disprove the resurrection, all they would have had to do would be to go down to Jesus' tomb, pluck the body out of the tomb, and parade it down the street for all to see. Anyone who got a good look at Jesus' dead body his corpse, would have known that the disciples were lying. They could have even strung Jesus' body from a high place so that even more people could see that the Nazarene had not been resurrected. If they had done this, Christianity would have died before it even began. But it's still alive today. Why? The best explanation for why it didn't 
why it wasn't why the movement wasn't squashed in the first century is that the enemies did not in fact go down to Jesus's tomb and pluck his body out and show it to everyone and the reason that they did not go down to the tomb and pluck his body out is that there was nobody in there to be taken out the tomb was empty the body was gone there are other reasons to believe that the tomb was empty such as the fact that it was it's multiply attested being recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and it is implied in the 1 Corinthians 15 creed. It's it is statistically impossible for five independent sources to all make up the same lie. I go into the I go into the multiple attestation argument in my book Inferent I mean uh the my redeemer lives. So the empty tomb is Historical. And pointing to dying and rising gods doesn't do anything to show that it is not historical. And it doesn't do anything to explain it. The third minimal fact, that, that Jesus' disciples both claimed to see the risen Jesus and really believed it, is not refuted or addressed by pointing to similarities between Jesus and pagan gods. We saw in the... You in the If you listen to the previous podcast episode, you'll, you'll know that we can trace the claims... Well... Well, actually, I talked about it a little bit in this episode, too. We, we can trace the claims of the resurrection to the lips of the original disciples. In Paul's letters, he said that he had access to the original disciples and had fellowship with them. In Galatians 2, Paul says that his purpose in meeting the apostles was to make sure they were preaching the same message. And Paul says that they were in chapter 2, verse 6. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 11, Paul says, essentially, that it doesn't matter whether you talk to the twelve disciples or him— you're going to get the same message. And the creedal tradition, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following, dates to within five years after the death of Jesus. This is well within the lifetimes of the twelve disciples who could have corrected this oral tradition if he really hadn't appeared to them. Moreover, the early church fathers Tertullian and Irenaeus independently attest that the church fathers Polycarp and Clement were students of the Apostle John and that they knew several other apostles as well. This is significant because Polycarp and Clement say that the original disciples were claiming that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. Since they knew and fellowshiped with Jesus' twelve disciples, they would certainly be in the position to know what the disciples believed. Now, with through the Apostle Paul, Polycarp, and Clement, we know that the disciples claimed that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. But with seven independent sources that attest to their martyrdom, we can conclude that they didn't just merely claim that Jesus rose from the dead, they really believed it. They really believed that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. And then we have the conversion of two skeptics, Paul and James. If the story of Jesus' resurrection were merely a plagiarized tale of dying and rising gods, how on earth did these two skeptics get involved? What, what caused Paul to go from persecuting Christians, whom he believed were leading the Jews away from worship of the one true God, to being a Christian himself? Why is it that James didn't believe his brother was the Messiah until some time after his death? As I'd argued in the previous chapter, the best explanation is that they had experiences of seeing the risen Jesus. Now, the, the point I'm, I'm trying to make in, in rehashing the minimal facts and the and the historical evidence in their favor is this you need to explain the experiences of the disciples Paul and James if you're going to adequately explain the origin of Christianity if you don't explain the disciples experiences if you don't explain Paul's conversion 
if you don't explain James's conversion. If you don't explain the empty tomb, then you haven't explained Christianity's origin. The historical evidence establishes that the five minimal facts are indeed facts. And these facts are neither refuted nor explained by saying, look, the story of Jesus looks a lot like the story of Adonis, or look, the story of Jesus looks a lot like the story of Horus, or look, Jesus and Mithras are really similar. I don't care. Explain the empty tomb, explain why the disciples believed they saw Jesus after his death, explain what caused Paul and James to believe they saw Jesus alive after his death, or shut up. I know that's a little frank, but seriously, I... I shut up. You're, you're not... This is a, the red herring fallacy. Give me a theory to explain the minimal facts, and I'll stop being a Christian. Okay, that's the first point. The second point is that parallels between stories are no indication of non of non-historicity. Just because two stories may be a lot of like doesn't entail that one of them ripped off the other. We have some strange we have a strange example in history of this happening. A long time ago, there was an incredible tragedy that occurred. A huge passenger ship, which people said was unsinkable, on a cold night in the North Atlantic, about 200 miles off of Newfoundland, struck an iceberg and sank. Many people died because there weren't enough lifeboats. What ship, what vessel am I talking about? You think I'm talking about the Titanic, right? Nope. I'm talking about a ship called the Titan, in a novel written in 1898, 14 years before the wreck of the Titanic. This novel is called The Wreck of the Titan, by Morgan Robertson. The parallels between The Wreck of the Titan and the historical event of the Titanic are really striking. However, I don't know of anyone who would argue that on this basis there never was a ship called the Titanic that sank. If the novel Wreck of the Titan doesn't disprove the historicity of the accounts of the Titanic, why would similarities between Horus and Jesus, or Mithras and Jesus, or Dionysus and Jesus, disprove the accounts of Jesus' miracles, death, and resurrection? Now, there are some other points I could go into, but I'm running out of time here, so I'm just going to give one more point. I go into more in My Redeemer Lives. Uh, this last point is that these the supposed similarities between Jesus and these pagan deities are very vague. This is one of the reasons why the copycat theory lost its standing among scholars. Uh, the, the reason is that the more they compared Jesus' story to the stories of these pagan gods, the more they found it implausible that any copying had been done. The similarities that were touted were very vague and stretched. Let's just just look at a let's just look at a few examples. One example is that Dionysus is said to have died and risen again like Jesus. But when you examine the stories, you find that Dionysus wasn't miraculously raised by his deity father, but his mother pieced him back together. Other stories say that Dionysus was killed by Zeus swallowing his heart and his heart was made into a potion given to Simile. Does this sound like Jesus at all? Dionysus was born on December 25th, just like Jesus. This proves plagiarism, right? Okay, well, first of all, it's not strange for multiple people to share the same birthday. I share a birthday with actor Zachary Quinto. Live long and prosper. But that doesn't mean that if biographies were written about us that you could say that, that 
I am a copy of Zachary Quinto. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. But e- even even more importantly, the Bible never says that Jesus was born on December 25th. That date for Christmas was chosen by the Pope hundreds of years after Jesus was born. Most scholars believe Jesus was born in the summer, sometime between June and, and September. And they give some reasons for that. I can't remember what they are, but... There are some arguments for why scholars think that the date, the the real date of Christ, of Christmas is sometime between June and September. It is said that Mithras was born of a virgin, just like Jesus, right? Okay, plagiarism. Newsflash: Mithras was born out of a rock. Now, I guess you could, I guess technically one could say that since rocks can't have sex, the rock was a virgin. But by that logic, Frosty the Snowman was also born of, the, of a virgin, because I'm pretty sure that old hat wasn't getting any. <laughs> this is ridiculous. The birth of Mithras is nothing like the birth of Jesus. Jesus was born of a human woman, not a rock. What about Horus? During his battle with Set, he lost an eye. But he never died. Since he never died, he couldn't be resurrected. Death is a prerequisite to resurrection. Osiris was killed by his brother, chopped up into 14 pieces, and the pieces were scattered all over Egypt. The goddess Isis retrieved the pieces and put them back together. Um, so, you could say that Humpty Dumpty was plagiarized from Osiris, but not Jesus. I mean, sure, you have a guy who was killed and is brought back to life, but... Jesus wasn't chopped into 14 pieces by one of his brothers and had his body body parts scattered all over Israel. He was crucified by the Roman government as nine independent historical sources, four of them secular, one of them Jewish, four of them from the New Testament, testify. The only thing Jesus and Osiris have in common is they both died and came back to life. That's it. The skeptics aren't taking the various differences of these two into account. Um, these are just a few of the not-so-similarities between Jesus and the pagan gods. As, as Bart Ehrman, agnostic professor of religious studies at UNC, has said, quote, The alleged parallels between Jesus and the pagan savior gods in most instances, instances reside in the modern imagination. We do not have accounts of others who were born of, to virgin mothers and who died as an atonement for sin and then were raised from the dead, despite what sensationalists claim ad nauseum in their, in their propagandized versions, end quote. Now, there are a couple of other theories that I talk about. Uh, I talk about in the book, My Redeemer Lives, but uh, they're a little silly. They're like, oh, Jesus had a twin brother. The twin brother stole Jesus' body and then hid it somewhere. And oh, or, or Jesus was an alien from outer space. I like to call it the Time Lord Jesus view, but... Um, we don't, I, running on one, one hour and ten minutes, and I don't have time to address these, uh, theories. You can get the book for yourself, but needless to say, um, none of the naturalistic theories that skeptics pose to explain the resurrection works. They're, they don't work. They are failures. They are unreasonable to affirm. So what does that, where does that leave us? 
Well, in his book, Justifying Historical Descriptions, C.B. McCullough puts forth several criteria which historians use for assessing historical theories. These criteria are, one, explanatory scope, two, explanatory power, three, plausibility, four, not being ad hoc or contrived, and five, being in agreement with established facts. Uh, oh, and six, outstripping his rival theories. The he is risen hypothesis passes every one of these tests with flying colors. The same cannot be said about the various naturalistic theories we looked at. It, it has exhaust, The resurrection hypothesis has explanatory, exhaustive explanatory scope because it explains all of the facts in need of an explanation. It explains why Jesus' tomb was empty, why the disciples believed they saw him, why James believed he saw him, and why Paul believed he saw him. It has explanatory power. It explains why the tomb of Jesus was vacant and why folks kept seeing Jesus alive on numerous occasions in spite of being killed on a Roman cross days before. It has plausibility. Given the background of Jesus' life and claims, the resurrection is an authentication of those claims. It's not ad hoc or contrived. It only requires the subsequent declaration to be true. It is possible that God exists. And if you've listened to the first several episodes of this podcast, or if you've read my book, The Case for the One True God, you'll know that it's not just possible that God exists— but God actually does exist. The origin of the universe, the cosmic and local fine-tuning of the universe, the existence of objective morality, all of these support the existence of God. It's in accord with accepted beliefs, the resurrection is. I could, now I can hear the voice of the skeptic saying, People who die stay dead, stupid. Science has, has proven that dead people don't come to li back to life. Um, newsflash, science has proven that people don't come back to, to life naturally. They don't, they, resurrections do not occur by natural causes, but this is not the hypo, the resurrection hypothesis is not that Jesus rose from the dead by natural causes. The resurrection hypothesis is that God raised Jesus from the dead via a miracle. So, the resurrection hypothesis does not conflict with the conventional belief that people cannot and do not rise from the dead naturally. It outstri what about outstripping rival theories? We've seen that none of the naturalistic theories can adequately explain all of the data. Only the resurrection hypothesis succeeds in criteria 1 to 4 above and should, therefore, be preferred. The best explanation of the five minimal facts is that he is risen. He is risen indeed. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast series on the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Again, um, you can get the book, My Redeemer Lives, Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus, I wrote on Amazon.com, and you could actually get it for free for a limited amount of time. Um, if you're listening to this after Easter, it's, I'm sorry, it's too late for you. You have to buy it, but it's not that much. It's only $4.99 on Kindle. Uh, it's free with Kindle Unlimited, and it it's $10.99 in paperback. And I go into a lot more detail into and I even I even talk about some stuff I didn't talk about in this podcast series. I gave arguments for the minimal facts that I didn't talk about uh, in this series. Uh, I answered some 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 questions that that you might have after listening to this and 
yeah, so if you want a more robust look into the histor- the evidence for the historicity of Jesus' resurrection, get that book. Thank you for listening. God bless you. See you next time.